Welcome to the Story Paths podcast, where we explore links between story and culture. I'm Theodore Lowry, your host. I'm excited to announce that, as of March 2023, I've released my first on-demand creativity course. It's on Skillshare, nestled within a library of great creative courses, and if you're not already on there, I've got a link in the show notes where you can get a free month. My course is called Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas. In it, I guide you through finding ideas within your memories, working with them as symbols, and learning to deftly combine and recombine them into meaningful stories. There's a trailer for the course there in the show notes, along with the free link. Hope to see you in there. And so, we begin. Here are some questions to hold and meditate upon during the course of our conversation. How does the monomyth of monotheism malnourish the very sky god it praises? What if we composted certainty into a fertile mystery that could birth the miracles we are desperate to behold? Welcome to Story Paths. I'm Theodore Lowry. Today, I'll be conducting an interview along with my lovely and intelligent wife, Jessie. Hello. We'll be interviewing the author, Sophie Strand. The spores rise from the underworld and they ascend to the sky. And they get to be sky gods and storm gods temporarily, and then they cycle back down into the dirt. And they create new fungal systems and they learn from that deep nourishment underground. And then they fruit back up again. So I was thinking about how all of these gods that become monotheistic begin as healthier gods that know that sometimes you're ascending on a nucleated spore molecule, and sometimes you're rooting through your appetite and your little hyphal cells through the soil. Now before we get into the interview, to give you a taste of Sophie's evocative writing, I'd like to read an excerpt from her upcoming book, The Flowering Wand. Lunar kings, lichenized lovers, trans-species magicians, and rhizomatic harpists heal the masculine. These mushrooms release billions of spores that create clouds. These sporulated clouds, in turn, drop rain down into these environments, creating the perfect conditions for mushrooms. Whole tropical ecosystems are intimately coordinated by these invisible swarms of spores. This indicates that as we degrade soil and destroy underground mycelial communities, we are not only harming the ground, we are harming the sky. The source of rain isn't always above our heads. Sometimes it comes from below our feet. Imagine, then, the small hand-sized cloud that Elijah saw as a shimmering symphony of spores. What if the storm god Yahweh wasn't singular, but scintillating with multiplicity, a billion glittering spores, each nestled within a skin of water? 
How is a monotheistic sky god supposed to rule the dirt, the fungi, the funky, sexy reality of embodied life if he is always hovering above it? How can he understand the millions of different stories that constitute an ecosystem when he insists there is only one story and one god? Monotheism is trapped by its attachment to a mythic monologue. Sky gods think sunshine, abstraction, and ascension are the answer to everything. But the problem with the sun is that if it isn't tempered by darkness and rain and decay, it tends to create deserts instead of biodiverse ecosystems. We are ground people who have been worshipping sky stories not properly suited to our relational existence rooted in specific landscapes. Sporulated storm gods come from the ground, like us, so they understand our soil-fed, rain-sweetened existence. They bring the wisdom of the underworld and lift it into the sky, only to pour it back into the leaves, the grasses, the valleys, soaking back into the dirt from which they originally emerged. Sky gods encourage linear thinking. Spore gods teach us that everything is cyclical. Yes, sometimes we must ascend like a spore on the wind, but it is also important to descend back into our bodies and back into the earth. So here we are with the amazing Sophie Strand who has the most interesting bio that I have ever seen. You see, Sophie Strand is a writer based in the Hudson Valley who focuses on the intersection of spirituality, storytelling, and ecology. But it would probably be more authentic to call her a neo-troubadour animist with a propensity to spin yarns that inevitably turn into love stories. Give her a salamander and a stone, and she will write you a love story. Sophie was raised by house cats, puffballs, possums, raccoons, and an opinionated crippled goose. In every neighborhood she's ever lived in, she has been known as the walker. She believes strongly that all thinking happens interstitially, between beings, ideas, differences, and mythical gradients. Her first book of essays, The Flowering Wand, Lunar Kings, Lycanized Lovers, Transspecies Magicians, and Rhizomatic Harpists Heal the Masculine, is forthcoming in 2022 from Inner Traditions. Her eco-feminist historical fiction reimagining of the Gospels, The Madonna Secret, will also be published by Inner Traditions. Her books of poetry include Love Song to a Blue God, Those Other Flowers to Come, and The Approach. Her poems and essays have been published by Art Papers, The Dark Mountain Project, Poetry.org, Unearthed, Braided Way, Creatrix, Your Impossible Voice, The Doris, Persephone's Daughters, and Entropy. She has recently finished a work of historical fiction, The Madonna Secret, that offers an eco-feminist revision of the Gospels. She is currently researching her next epic, a mythopoetic explanation of ecology and queerness in the medieval legend of Tristan and Isolde. Thank you so much for the most energetic, probably most authentic reading of my bio I've ever heard. That is the energy. Yeah. <laughs> it deserves it, you know? <laughs> 
So I'd like to first begin by asking you, how did you come up with this incredible title, The Flowering Wand, Lunar Kings, Lichenized Lovers, Trans-Species Magicians, and Rhizomatic Harpist, Heal the Masculine? Oh, man. Well, the title was a joke I made up. And I think that's kind of how everything magical happens in your life is it starts as a joke and then it becomes what you're known for. Um, But I this was writing that I was doing while trying to sell another book that I was posting online um, just as a lark, writing it every day, posting it online the second I wrote it. And um, I was asked on a podcast, I had like maybe a hundred pages. I've been writing for like a week. (laughs) And they were like, what would the the person who was doing the podcast said, like, what would be the title of this book? And that's what I said as a joke. (laughs) But then I got a book deal the next week for this unfinished book, pretty much at the time. And they were like, no, that's the title. So. Absolutely. It's an incredible title. (laughs) Thank you. But yeah, I do. I do strongly believe in all the aspects of it. And those are those are the kind of thematic um, threads that run through the whole project. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's. Um, and then if you wouldn't mind just talking briefly about your other book, which is coming out, I believe you said 2023. Okay. Yeah, I think the spring, it's funny, I just sent in the final edits um, two days ago, which felt like a breakup. Like I've been working on this book for so long. I was like, what am I going to do if this book isn't on my plate? Um, I've always felt like there's something very strange that happens to the story of Jesus, which is when it becomes deracinated from its ecological context, from its social and political context, from the fact that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi attempting to revise Judaism, <laughs> when when that story gets co-opted by the very empire that assassinates Jesus and translated into that language and uprooted from its actual mycorrhizal nourishment, it, it starts to be, it ossifies into dogma and it starts to be a tool of oppression. And as a storyteller, I've always felt such a connection to the tragedy of that story. That it's not a beautiful story. It's not a miracle. It's a tragedy. And how could you enter into it as a tragedy and create an ecosystem where you bring back to life the real Jewish people, the real landscape, all of the animals, the flora, the fauna, the fungi that actually would have informed that nature-based storytelling magician? Um, And of course, for me as a woman, seeing that Mary Magdalene had been such a key part of the disciples, especially when we start looking at the earlier Gnostic texts and the folklore and the Apocrypha, I thought women always are written out of the text. What what would it be like to, and this is always a hard thing for me, which I I read Mists of Avalon when I was younger and deeply loved it. And when I found out about Marion Zimmer Bradley's terrible offenses, I had to write it off pretty much because it really didn't map onto my life anymore. But I'd always wanted to do a kind of Mists of Avalon to the story of the Gospels, which is bring all the women back to life, bring all of the different folkloric practices that were informing that time period, make make it come back to life as an ecosystem, not as an anthropocentric monologue. Yeah. So that was the impulse behind it. Yeah, this is really interesting. So I just want to pause and highlight these, these two points 
two kinds of worship or two kinds of ways of regarding, let's say, Jesus or Yeshua. And one is very contextual, uh, that he came from the times he was in, uh, and the worship that was going on at the time and the mythological conceptions. And another is like taking him out of time and place. Is that right? Like um, making him fixed, you know, like a monotheistic idea that he's, he's like this, he's independent of context, like he's become stone-like or calcified, that he is not able to move or be part of a changing system anymore. And if we extrapolate Yeshua out of the context of all the relationships that he was surrounded with, with the earth and humans, then we take out the consideration of the alchemy that created Yeshua. And then what are we left with when we do that, the hero's journey? Yeah, I mean, I, I love thinking about Jesus as being the interrupted story of a vegetal God, that he's on a rhizomatic. So when we think about, can, can I get a little like theoretical? Absolutely. Yeah. This is the place. I, I love fungi. That's kind of like my working metaphor. I'm not saying they work for everything. I'll try and make them work for everything. That's what I do. But for me, I think about fungi, which create these underground systems of filamentous threads that connect trees and plants and grasses. And they, you know, they probe the soil. They, the saprophytic fungi break down dead, dead matter and make it into soil. They nourish and connect trees. Um, and they're mostly invisible and below ground. So when you actually see a mushroom pop up, it's not an individual. It's just a reproductive event of this much bigger interconnected being underground. And it just pops up above ground to sporulate, to reproduce. So I've been thinking about vegetal gods in the Mediterranean basin um, and in the, the, um, the time period around Jesus and the 2,000 years before Jesus as being a moment where you have a below-ground mythic mycelium, mythic mycorrhizal system of fun filamentous fungal um, beings, um, that then fruit up in different political and ecological and social contexts and look different. They look superficially different, but they come from the same root system. Um, so that seems, I see a lot of continuities and so many other mythologists have pointed out these similarities between Osiris, who is a God who also dies and resurrects. And it's also associated with beer and fermentation um, in Egypt on a rhizomatic continuity with another fermentation god, Dionysus, who is first mentioned in Linear B on Crete and predates the Greek pantheon. So one of the oldest gods in that area, um, who's also a god of fermentation and grapes and wines and prostitutes and people who are exiled from communities. Um, and all of these gods are actually usually a threat to the system. And that's an interesting aspect of them. So I see Dionysus, I see Addis and Adonis, um, other dying resurrecting gods that are connected to anemones and violets and other plants. Um, you know, I think every year it was people would go up on top of their roofs um, 
in um, Greece and they would create these little dying plants where they grow plants and then let them die to celebrate the dying and resurrecting cycle of the vegetal god Attis. Or Ad no, th these were for Adonis, um, who's speared by the boar. And so what I, what I see in these initial vegetal gods is a honoring of the cycle of decay and refruit, that they stay within that virtuous cycle. They fruit up, they offer wisdom, and then they go back into the earth that gave them birth, and they sink back into the mycorrhizal system, and they let themselves get nourished to come back, freshly adapted. So they don't get, like you brought up stone earlier, they don't get ossified. They don't get stale because they're constantly cycling through these different phases. But for me, Jesus seems to represent a moment where the, the God dies and his body disappears. He doesn't go back to the earth to, he's not, Isis takes Osiris's body and chops it up and puts it into the, the ground to mulch the ground. That does not happen with Jesus. The body is evaporated. And so it's, it's an interruption in that vegetal cycle. And that seems to me to be the real moment where something complicated happens that then becomes the ideological split between mind and matter, spirit and body. Um, and I was really struck by when I was reading Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake when he talks about how in the Carboniferous period, there was a 360 million, 360 million years ago during the Carboniferous period, there was a bloom of early wood plants that then would die and build up and not decay because no fungi had developed to break them down and it began to suffocate the earth. <laughs> and it was only when white rot developed and broke these things down that it actually created what are, we now think of as the fossil fuels <laughs> that are powering our earth today. And so it's this period is actually of all these condensed woody matter that didn't break down is it's a fungal absence. And it's so interesting to think of that period of fungal absence, that interruption in the fungal cycle within geological time as being kind of what happens for Jesus. Like nothing breaks him down. And that fungal absence is what's powering global warming right now. Interesting correlation. It's amazing. Yeah. And how much of the negative aspects of Christianity were powered by this calcified, ossified, uh, disconnected, deracinated Jesus. That goes into like, oh my gosh, the whole, I was a medievalist in college and there's such a big thing about the non-corruptibility of saints' bodies, like saints' bodies that don't decay. Like that becomes a real fetish object for early folk Christianity in England. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm, yeah, that's right. And this, you know, what is the, what is the surrender to letting your your death feed the earth back yeah. in that what, yeah. like, what a beautiful offering at the end of your life is this how I could just you know my entire life I've been fed and given the gift of life and taken so much life to feed my own and then in the end to surrender that back is yeah. this beautiful ceremonial act our last one we can give in this body I also think it's this you know, I've, I've spent time with dying animals and then with corpses and um, spent a lot of time in the woods and um, sat with deer decomposing that I, I was with it when it died. And then I was with it as it went back to the earth. And I oftentimes think as death is that moment when we move from a solitary bounded aliveness to a 
chorus of aliveness that all of a sudden our, our life is, it's so many different beings. It's maggots, it's fungi, it's bacteria, it's plants. It's, you know, we can't, it's not the moment when life stops. It's the life, it's the moment when life overflows. Um, yeah. So wouldn't it be complicated to interrupt that moment of overflowing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It seems like there's, there's really two different worldviews, uh, that we're talking about, and you might say it's a sky and an earth worldview or a transcendent and an imminent or uh, soil root worldview. And I wonder if you, if you think there's some overlap possibly between them. Well, I don't know. Have you read my essay, Spore Gods or Storm Gods? Because it's my way of, of metabolizing and trying to understand that we can't demonize any one direction. And that the minute we try and exclude some type of experience, we've just rearticulated the thing we're trying to escape. Exactly. So for me, spores are a really great way of thinking about what happens when storm gods become sky gods. So initially, mm -hmm. all of these monotheistic gods were more... They, they had more body, you know, they were storm gods, usually, you know, the, the original Yahweh is a storm god filled with sand and moving matter and water molecules, <laughs> interacting with people, we can think of, of Shiva, and Rudra, and all of these original um, gods that get more and more abstracted, slowly, begin as storm gods, begin as um, gods of cycling matter, <laughs> that they, and then I was doing some research into spores, and fungal spores and realizing that in a lot of humid, rainy environments, the whole climate is um, orchestrated by spores, fungal spores, which is that mushrooms come up from those underground mycorrhizal systems. They fruit up and they sporulate. And when they let out these millions of spores, the spores nucleate water around them and they become a nucleus of a water molecule and they rise. You know, there are 50 million tons of spores in the air right now, probably. Like, I think it's like the highest density of biomatter in the air are spores, 10 with every breath. But so they create thunderclouds, they create storms, and they create the weather, the humid, rainy weather that then makes it amenable for mushrooms to fruit up again. But the spores rise from the underworld and they ascend to the sky and they get to be sky gods and storm gods temporarily. And then they cycle back down into the dirt and they create new fungal systems, and they learn from that deep nourishment underground, and then they fruit back up again. So I was thinking about how all of these gods that become monotheistic begin as healthier gods that know that sometimes you're ascending on a nucleated spore molecule, and sometimes you're rooting through your appetite and your little hyphal cells through the soil. Um, and that it's not about rejecting sky gods. It's about saying that when we, when we take the sky gods out of the cycle of constantly looping, you know, just like we inhale and exhale, sky gods are going into the ground, rising up, coming down. They stop being able to articulate anything useful for us gravity-bound, soil-nourished beings. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I personally kind of thought about it. it makes me think of something... Uh occurred to me a while ago, which is, it's, it's so simple that it just sounds self-evident when I say it, but it's just that the earth was made by space. You know, it's sort of, there's, <laughs> this, this, <laughs> there's a, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a, a contradiction or a contrast between, you know, are we, are we 
earth worshipers or sky worshipers you know are we are we in this world or or out of this world ultimately transcendent and they're just thinking well gosh you know the earth is part of a larger system it's not you know it's not really a contradiction the earth is made of stars and other planets and asteroids and space and all of this so it's it's all the same stuff in that way even the other planets and yeah beyond yeah and this up and down you know in what is it? Yeah. To be up and down the motions. It's, it's not really up when you're on a globe and spinning around. It's, there's no up and down in that. I'm curious if you, this is just a question of personal belief, really. Uh, if you consider that there's a continued existence of an individual after death, like, is there a soul? Is there a spirit in that sense? Or is it, is it like the, you know, a person decomposes, the body decomposes, uh, and goes into many other beings. Do you consider that there's any continuation of an individual, the consciousness? I have two different answers. I will give two different answers. And then I would love to hear, really love to hear what you guys believe or feel. Um, I have a generous uncertainty about this. I'm not sure. I know that I have had experiences in my life that I are so uncanny and weird that reincarnation, some kind of reincarnate experience, and I don't know what would explain it, is the only way I can make sense of it. Places I've been, things I've known, it just, you know, and I, a lot of other people have this, and could that could that experience be explained in some other way? Possibly, and I'm totally open to those ex explanations arriving, um, but they've been very strange. Um, so I do, and I was also raised by... Um, I was raised within a context where reincarnation was talked about and it was considered like a, a belief system that was, it was baked into my childhood. Um, so, so that's definitely something that I, that's a story that works for me. Um, but something I also think about is I think about beingness, animacy, the teeming aliveness of the world. But I do think that reincarnation sometimes is anthropocentric, which is it's like you were a human, then you were a human, then you were a human. And Sometimes I think about life as being like a giant bowl of soup and that every, t every lifetime is you take a, a ladle and you ladle out some soup and that's you. And then you pour it back in and then you ladle out more soup. And so the next ladle is like a little bit of old soup, some other person's soup. And so like may maybe you're a lot of different soups from past lives, but other people share those lives too. And I like that because that's a little bit queer, like a little bit weirder. Yeah, that's my soup theory. I, I haven't shared that with many people. Yeah, well, that's... I love that. Here for, you know. Um, yeah, for myself, uh, I was also in a religion for a long time uh, yeah. that taught reincarnation. And it's also reincarnation. It's between species in reincarnation also. Yeah. So there's not a... It's not described that there's a difference between a human soul and an animal soul or a yeah. plant soul, a tree soul or a bacteria soul. But, but there form are, is hierarchical. But, yeah, but there is a progression it's described toward the human form. And then there's devas, demigods, and that's uh, maybe even better than being a human, but not as good in terms of self-realization and so on. Yeah. Um, yeah, so in that, in that concept, there is a discrete soul, like a person's an individual, and they're very involved in the particular body they're in and the particular relationships they're in the particular world they're in. So I guess my current conception would be something like a combination of those two really. And yeah, I also hold it lightly. And at this point, 
uh, not certain. I wouldn't want to say <laughs> yeah. this is the one truth. The one truth is it's both. But I'm feeling, <laughs> I'm feeling, I'm feeling like it's both because I do feel uh, truth in that yeah. radical interrelationship between all beings and this question of where do I end. And, you know, my microbiome begins or the what I ate for breakfast begins or so on. Um, I'm so porous physically and also emotionally and intellectually, psychically. I'm so porous that it's hard to tell exactly what's me and what's not me. And the concept of the soul is that there really is something that's distinct to me. Um, and at the same time, I do feel that there is something that's inherently me, you know? I, I I don't feel like I'm just a combination of various things. I do feel like I have my own distinct identity. So I kind of feel both in that way. How about you? I've been feeling the medicine of mystery lately and what that feels like to fall in love with mystery. And um, so I don't actually need to have any um, idea of what exactly will happen and um, what exactly my my particular soul is. Um, and yeah, like Theo's saying, I have a hard time even extrapolating what is my soul from the context of all the infinite relationships inside my own body that are really calling the shots more than I am, right? Because we're more bacteria cells than we are human. Mm. So um, I feel this real... Um, yeah, just it feels good to have mystery and it really feels a part of this whole experience. And um, so there's been a lot of like kind of trying to squash mystery. I think a lot of theology is really all about that. And so it feels good to for this time in my life, at least, you know, there was a time when answers felt good and right for who I was in that moment, but now it no longer feels, yeah, like that's the right medicine for the time that I'm in. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, I think I have a lot of sympathy and I have a lot of personal experience with wanting a stable value system. And when you've experienced instability yeah. in your life, be it physical, emotional, trauma, of any type, having answers can feel like it actually can calm your nervous system down. So it can be a survival technique. And I think actually, I, I think a lot about how early, early Christianity and late sec second temple period Judaism was deeply informed by trauma, by displacement and genocide and imperial rule and uh, a, a constant punishing of the body by, uh, by other people. And so that a stable value system that, demotes the body <laughs> would help make sense of things. And I have a lot of sympathy for that kind of like cultural somatic understanding of that. And in myself too, there've been moments where I needed answers that carried me. And then the answers were like a faulty flotation device and they didn't keep me going anywhere. I had to tread water in uncertainty. And that's, so I feel you, I feel like I'm treading water in uncertainty right now. And I don't know how far away the shore is, but I hope I can make it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess, yeah, I wonder, is there I a don't shore? know. I, I, <laughs> yeah, and that, and that isn't an easy position yeah. to be in. Uh, like you say, especially if in other areas of one's life, uh, besides kind of philosophical yeah. outlook, things are really uncertain and really difficult. 
then you can understand this. Okay, at least I want to know what's what in terms of God and in terms of these big questions. Like, I don't want to be constantly wondering about those things. You know, somebody tell me. I, I, can I just say one thing that there, it feels like mystery is very fertile and that our ancestors have a deep understanding with that mystery is the initiator. Mystery is the, the alchemy of, um, our transmutations and cycles. And so I think that that's something that, yeah, we've really gotten out of and that I, I feel, I feel collectively there's a bit more movement in that direction. I feel it too. And yeah, I think a lot about, so I studied miracles and saints lives in college through this medieval studies mm-hmm. um, lens and about, so I would read like hundred page, like manuscripts in middle English of people recounting the miracles they experienced. So you would go to like um, the um, place where Thomas Beckett was killed and there'd be a book and you'd go and attribute your miracle to him. And there'd be thousands of stories. And these aren't like three people making stuff up. These are like thousands of people being like, my baby was dead. I prayed to Thomas Beckett. We hit him on the head with a stone. He woke up. Like stuff that weird. But I think about miracle mind. <laughs> I mean, if you ever want to read something amazing, like, look up a saint, a medieval saint, and look up the miracles attributed to them. It's amazing. But I think about miracle mind is an uncertainty. And when you're so certain of everything, you can only ever receive what you expect. And we oftentimes don't expect what we need. (laughs) So if we're always trying to tell the story, we can't be told into more miraculous happenings. So yeah, I think fertile and also miraculous. I think uncertainty opens the portal to miracles. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's it's a really good point you make that we we can't experience or it's very difficult for us to experience that which is totally unexpected i mean i've heard that's true even in a sensory way that it's hard to see things that we don't expect to see yeah that that's what i've done the most research about actually sensory gating that's what i'm fascinated by uh-huh. um and how a lot of people are very fixated on psychedelics right now because it's a kind of like quick fix way of shutting down your default mode network and opening up that sensory gating so that you can have all that sensory stimuli and be like, wow. But the truth is that like, you can just sit with your body and open up the, begin to play with opening up those gates and receive more sensory data. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think about like, we can't even register with our hearing, like the songs of the whales. They're just too some of these sounds that are too mm-hmm. low to even register and mm-hmm. what is happening. Yeah. in every moment that we just even can't perceive. I know. And then we think we know everything. I mean, whenever anyone is like, my favorite is um, when science is like, we're so close to having this totally figured out. We're like two days away. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Like, you guys have been saying that for a yeah. hundred years. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then religion is more like it was figured out yeah. back in the day when these personalities were here. And let's be more like that. It's often yeah. more backward yeah. looking. There's something I really want to talk about because I heard you mentioning this um, mother as monster. Oh, yeah. With, that, this is a really talk about fertile area here that I just like I really I hadn't quite heard somebody articulate it like you had. And so I'm very fascinated in like, if there's somebody you could talk about that went through that. Oh yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, if there's someone you're thinking I mean, I think when you start to control nature and subjugate it, and then you start to control women and subjugate women, you get scared of the things you're trying to repress. So you have to turn them into monsters. (laughs) So it makes, this is a very simplistic explanation, but then I'll go into a deeper one, which is like, whenever you look at a myth or a legend or a story and there's a monster, ask what, what the story is afraid of. Um, where's the fear? And so I think a great example is, um, Medusa, who's the Gorgon with the snake head. And you, you look at her as being this terrible Gorgon who threatens Perseus, but actually what you're seeing, and Joseph Campbell lays this out and Rian Eisler and Anne Baring and Jules Cashford, there are a lot of mythologists and storytellers who've kind of unpacked this before. I'm definitely not the first person thinking about these different levels of reinterpretation, which is on Crete and in the Mediterranean basin, there were in the Bronze Age and the pre-Neolithic Age, all these snake goddesses. Goddesses of fertility, of the earth, of snakes, of serpents, of vines, tentacles. And then all of a sudden when you have the Kurgan hordes and then the Greeks come down and start dominating these partnership societies that are more based their art is never focused on violence or heroic individuals it's always based on um epiphonic moments with the goddess and nature um and so when those these heroic um solar cultures and cults come down and dominate these snake goddess (laughs) you know in minoan culture there are all these snakes um and then you have the bull god which is the god of changeability you know with lunation cycles you don't have to be the same on any one day and these bull gods with their crescent horns are are all over i mean that's the dominant cult of um of that whole area for thousands and thousands of year, years are bull cults and bull gods who i call lunar kings because of their crescent horns um and so what you see is when the greeks come down and um, take over these cultures. They know they can't exterminate the myths because they're so deeply rooted in the lands. They have to retranslate them. So all of a sudden, the snake goddess who's getting killed has to become the monster who's being killed. So Perseus, who represents the invading Greeks, becomes the hero instead of the murderer. (laughs) And the mother goddess becomes the monster. And a great other example, which isn't even female, is that the bull god, the bull king, becomes the minotaur, becomes the monster at the middle of the labyrinth, um, and gets, um, you know, he originally had a name, Asterion, which meant the starry one. Doesn't sound like the name of a monster to me. Sounds like the name of a god. Um, And it does. And, oh, there's so many different versions of it. Tiamat, you know, Tiamat, who is the mother earth goddess of Babylonian culture, then gets co-opted, turned into another snake monster um, that gets killed by Marduk. And then that word, Tiham, is absorbed by the exiled Jews in Babylon, who then write it into Genesis, which is God, before the earth exists, God moves over the deep, which is um, the word used is Tiham, Tiamat. So the thing that even predates Genesis is Tiamat. So we have all of these hidden mothers behind these uncertain principles that scare us. You know, the deep, the the the, the unknown, um, the snake monster. Yeah. So whenever we have come up against a monster, let's ask if it's um, a person who we're afraid of because they're different. Yeah. 
I have some questions I want to get into. Yeah. And actually, before we do, and this is something I probably should have asked at the very beginning, <laughs> just that we locate ourselves. We talk about the land. Oh, definitely. And, yeah. and, and, and root ourselves in that way. So do you just want to speak a bit about where you are right now and what's going on with the seasons and the creatures and everything? Yeah. Yeah. I would love that. I'm in the Hudson Valley. I am in Kingston, right at the confluence of the Rondout Creek and the Hudson River. So it's this intense moment of confluence, of, of lymphatic pulses meeting up. And it's been a place that has been continuously inhabited for 10,000 years, at least. Um, it is also the place where the Muncie Lenape people were genocidally exterminated by the Dutch and the French. Um, they still exist and still have incredible wisdom, but they have been um, harmed in ways that don't show up in the history books and that are hard to find. And part of living here has been trying to understand. I don't think when you do violence to land, it goes away. And I feel living here that I'm living with ghosts, ghosts of land, tree ghosts. I mean, I oftentimes think is when the Dutch came in, there was a giant limestone berg, like a giant limestone rock, like 100 feet tall, huge, that the Muncie Lenape worshipped and thought was one of the most powerful beings in the world. And the Dutch took it down and, and shipped it out to be used um, industrially. And I, I pray to the limestone berg every morning because I know it would have been visible from where I live. And that removing a being like that from the land doesn't remove the being, but it makes it deeply, deeply unhappy. Um, yeah. So I live in a place that is incredibly fecund. There are, I mean, it's, it's, it's villagey. It's considered an upstate city in America, in, in the Hudson Valley, like, but it's not a city. It's a village. I see bald eagles out my window and I want to honor that I've been here really solidly through this pandemic alone and this land Sometimes I want to say, like, I've done a lot of writing, but it's the land that's on the writing. I feel like it's like really the la this land specifically using me. I oftentimes think of Ophiocordyceps unilateralis, this fungi that takes over carpenter ants and gets them up this um, plant stalk and then sporulates out of their head. And I've been thinking a lot lately <laughs> that I moved to this land and the land was like, oops. <laughs> And it came in me, and I've just been spoiling. So yeah, so that that's my landscape, and yeah, and the one thing I'll add that I just always want to is there was a word used by the Muncie Lenape people, and it was also part of the the whole Iroquois Confederation is this word, but it had different meanings in different places. It's Manitou, and it means like intense land spirit, as I can figure it out how it meant here, like the spirit of of. Sometimes you don't want to approach places because of the Manitou. And so I often always summon the Manitou mm -hmm. energy. Um, yeah, but thank you. Thank you for asking. And I'd love to hear about where you guys are. Oh, thank you so much for sharing. That was really, yeah, really beautiful. And you go yeah. ahead. It feels like a good invocation, even though we're midway through the podcast now. But things are nonlinear. <laughs> it's a spiral, right? Yeah. Yeah, things are nonlinear. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It's the right time. You go ahead. You want to speak about where we are? Well, I can just say a little something here. So uh, we're in so-called Salt Spring Island. We're relatively new here. Just a few months we've been here. And um, so I'm still... Home of the Coast Salish. 
Yeah, Coast Salish is kind of the umbrella term for all the smaller groups. And um, we're, I'm still trying to figure out the history. There's a lot of contradicting information about the history of the people, the indigenous, yeah. indigenous people here. So um, I, I don't know, like, authentically the history of that. I'm still unraveling that. And um, we're in the land of, I wish I knew all the varieties of moss and lichen <laughs> and uh, just um, cedar and uh, lots of fur. Um, this morning I heard an owl. I don't know what kind because I don't know owl calls, but I uh, there's lots of owls in, in the place where we're staying. And um, yeah, what else? Other beings here. There's arbutus trees here. Oh, they the look, sacred arbutus trees. They, they look like tropical trees oh. here in this uh, temperate rainforest in, in the Pacific Northwest. There's frogs, little frogs are neighbors. A lot of them are only about this big, <laughs> the size of your thumb or smaller than your thumb. Um, many different kinds of birds around here. And uh, yeah, especially on the sunny days, they're, all, they're singing. Lots of ravens. Yeah, lots of ravens. Yeah, I'm still getting to know the land a lot. You know, three months isn't isn't much time to be in a place. And um, we had left the community where we were living, which was like desert land. Um, Yeah, it was. It's considered technically a desert because it doesn't get much rain, but it's not. It doesn't look like a desert. and, uh, you know, that was more like juniper, sage, and uh, Sorrel. rattlesnakes. Oh. And, yeah, rattlesnakes. Yeah, that, so Favorite. so it feels really a bit like, whoa, we're kind of now in the opposite uh, mm-hmm. ecosystem. So wet here. Yeah, and um, but we, we left that community because it just culturally wasn't a place for us. It, yeah, it was um, a kind of an abrupt leaving. We just, we left and... So yeah, kind of just settling now into something else and uh, apprenticing mystery of where we're going to end up in the long term. I'm not sure. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, and I'll, I'll lead into I'll lead into a, a question I have because yeah. in that last place we were in, I was telling you also before we started recording, Sophie. There's a lake there, and the lake we were there when the lake froze, and we were there when the lake thawed, and the lake made all kinds of crazy sounds. Uh, like whales singing to each other mm. in a very excited mood <laughs> and, and got to know the muskrats and all of this. So like you're talking about that stone that was in the area where you are, mm. that being, and I felt that this lake is a being. Yeah. Uh, and if I can find a way kind of to ask this, this is, this is uh, again about your personal go for it view yeah. at this time your your kind of belief for lack of a better word at this time is are those those beings what is the nature of those beings and those beings that we name as gods that mix with each other we might call them archetypes um you know with with the religious view or say the monotheistic view uh, you know, God or a God is this eternal being who's always more or less the same. And when I think of spirits of the land and so on, I also think of, you know, these are these beings, you know, that's like the being of that hill. So, and these gods and different beings, 
they find our they find their way into our stories um and from our point of view from a human point of view i can read the myths of the world and hear the myths of the world and get a sense of these different beings and how they've appeared and changed over time and so my question is is that that whole mythological way of seeing and that storied way of seeing is that our our human way of making sense of reality in in a similar way like our senses interpret all the different wavelengths and everything around us in a certain way or are we touching on something that is that exists apart from our capacity to understand it in terms of myth and culture does that make sense yeah um i feel like i'm going to give a kind of refracted fragmented answer um mm-hmm. i do think that story is less of about language and linearity and people and it's more about movement and and I, for me, everything was really coming back to movement and thinking about cycles earlier, up and down, what is even up and down, that things get problematic, not when they go up or down, but when they get stuck, when they stop moving. And I thought about it in my own body a lot, too, and with a lot of health issues is when I stop moving, it's when things get or like when, when something gets stuck in my body, it's when things are dead bad. Um, so. I've been thinking about story as movement and everything moves. (laughs) So human beings didn't invent stories. We arrived inside that movement. We are being storied. Mm -hmm. And so we tell stories, Mm -hmm. but we don't always, I mean, I think we think that stories belong to us, but we are sometimes, you know, providing a mouth for something. Sometimes I think of civilization as being a fungal story, which is, you know, you start to see, cities and and sedentary communities right alongside fermentation um which was deeply um which was both noted and then totally ignored in david graber's the dawn of everything i like circled every time he was like fermentation blah blah blah, and like kept going and i was like (laughs) dude you have to acknowledge this but um (laughs) fermentation i sometimes i think about certain types of the ills of civilization as perhaps not even being a human story and not even, you know, there, there isn't one fungal story. There are millions of fungal stories. It's a type of fungal story, maybe. Um, so thinking about land and thinking about beings, something that has been helpful for me is thinking about Rupert Sheldrake's idea of morphic resonance and patterns of behavior, mm-hmm. that it's less of us having genetics that express ourselves, but that we're falling into these patterns and acting them out, and, but that those patterns evolve over time. They change. Um, just like we evolve and change, so do the patterns and the morphologies that we're falling into, our relationships evolve. And so sometimes I think of um, land spirits as being kind of wave fields, as as morphic fields, um, where they have a certain kind of intelligence and a pattern and a way that they come into being and a certain type of information they have to impart, but that it's not static. It's evolving, it's moving and changing. Um, so for me, it's the movement that's important. So like, yeah, there's a, I think of Overlook Mountain, which is close to where I live. And I think of that as being like a, a morphic field, like a pattern, a pattern of thought of beingness, mm-hmm. but that it's not always mm-hmm. the same. And that just like I'm growing and changing that whole being, that whole 
nested experience of aliveness is also evolving. And right now, I think we're in such a critical moment that I think that these archetypes are coming back up, but we should let them evolve and change. It's not that we need to throw out old archetypes, but we have to keep them agile. We have to keep their lymphatic system moving. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. I love that it's more like a verb than a noun, because when language nouns everything, then it calcifies. (laughs) We need to go back to more verbing, like... I'm Jessieing for this life. Yeah. You know? I always say I'm, I'm a gerund. Like I'm a, I'm a, a like an animaling, like yeah, Sophieing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Yeah. It's important. It's so many indigenous languages. There's way more of an emphasis on that, on the beingness of what you're doing and what yeah. your, your relationships are. Yeah. It is interesting. I started to think of my body as a, more of a pattern than a noun as well. Um, saw a documentary some time ago that that brought that point across, which is that you know my my body's always changing. I'm eating, I'm excreting, I'm and same thing with my mind, I suppose as well. Uh, and yet there's a pattern that's not a totally fixed pattern, and yet it's a recognition. Yeah, and yet pattern. I still somehow look kind of the same. Like yeah, I know. It's yeah, so that's right. There's all this matter yeah. coming in and out constantly, yeah. and yet you know I. I can't deny that there is some kind of pattern yeah. there. That that's who I am. I wonder if it's something like light, you know, it said light is a particle and a yeah. wave, but perhaps it's both. Like we have our individuality and our identity that may continue after death and come from before birth. And we're very uh, flexible according to circumstance and relationship. Yeah, well, I, I I oftentimes think about like the two directions of evolution, which is you have this like Darwinian forward pulse where things change slowly over time. And then you have these dramatic transversal incursions that like created our cells, you know, when organelles fuse to create prokaryotic cells, um, eukaryotic cells, um, and viral incursions that taught mammals how to have wombs. So there, there's these, yeah, there's this like, every individual giving birth to another individual, there is that, that does exist. We can watch that happen. We can watch it within our generations and our families. But then there are moments when like lichen, two beings fuse unpredictably. So I think that there's, there's anarchic unpredictability also available all the time. It kind of seems yeah, like our, our time's a bit like that culture, yeah. isn't it? There's so many um, different cultures interfacing that weren't in such that's such an interest yeah wow i never thought about it like that so many different ideas yeah i don't know if it's a good or a bad thing we'll see (laughs) (laughs) i was um earlier thinking i'd forgotten to mention we were talking about our our own personal beliefs about soul it's just thinking about how many times i've died in my own life (laughs) there you go yeah Sure, there's a continuation of me, but it's definitely another me. And uh, it's, yeah, we've died. We die in our lives, even ourselves, or every, what, seven years. Yeah, yeah. I think you should, you know, to live a good life, you have to die a couple of times. Yeah, and I think if you don't, you you get stuck. I mean, it's like people who want to live to like 145 in that body. I want to be like, really? All your friends are dead. Like, you know, you're not having a good time. Yeah. Um, you want to be able to revitalize your stories and come back differently. I feel like I had that personally during quarantine. 
And this is something I've heard you talk on where you kind of nuance this idea of initiation because it's a real hot word and hot topic these days with what's happening in the world. And so, um, yet there's this force in psyche that we can feel that kind of pull to initiate us into adulthood as a, as a, you know, a human, but we can also acknowledge the, the culture is almost like cement being poured over us, you know, and we're like, it's like the initiation process. It's, I, I look at it like a dandelion, like a cracking the cement. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm kind of wondering like what your thoughts are on that. Well, as someone who's had really bad things happen to me and had then had a lot of other people be like, it's an initiation. <laughs> I feel like I'm always, there are a lot of people who offer really interesting, helpful insight on that. It's not my take because it personally hasn't worked in my own life, which is, you know, it's only initiation retrospectively. It's only initiation if you survive and you can look backwards and see that you went through a process that changed you. But a lot of people don't make it. You know, if there's a night sea journey, most of the boats sink. And um, I think that right now we don't have any understanding that our boat's going to get it across the, the, the channel. You know, we don't know. And so it's very, it's very hard to classify. I feel like when people say this is an initiation to me or like try and talk about the pandemic in that way, it's that attempt to create a stable value system. We know what this is. It has a beginning, middle and end. And there are elders on the other side doing us out. You know, I think Tom Hirons yeah. might have talked about this with you too. Um, mm-hmm. I listened and I was like, yeah, I think me and Tom are definitely in the same wavelength with that. Like no one is helping us through this experience. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And Yeah, I do think that we are experiencing a pressure cooker of the work. This is, this is, okay. So I am trying to language this with you guys on, like on my feet, which is, and I've been trying to think about this in my own life. I feel like a lot of things that needed to happen, breakdowns, like, you know, tower card events that would have happened maybe over like 20 years are happening now in the space of like two years. And so I do think that there's a kind of, there's, a, a t- there's something outside of time almost about this mm-hmm. experience where it feels yeah. like events are happening in a way that isn't normally temporally how you would think of them happening. There's something uncanny about time right now. Um, it seems like it's very dense. Yeah. Yeah. It feels, it feels like it's accelerating. And that's and very that's my experience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It feels like to me, there's a lot of rapid unraveling happening as well, that it's hard to even keep up with it all. Um, But I do see in the recipe of initiation that I see qualities that could potentially be initiation. I don't see that actually being manifested. (laughs) I think that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. But in the recipe of like what traditionally we might think of, as potential initiation, yeah. there I, exists a lot of common elements. Yeah. But we don't have one thing, though, I do want to say is that is initiation the afterthought, or is it that? Because when I think about initiation, there's always mystery of survival. Like, will we make yeah. it through? And so, yeah, is it? I feel like we just have to like nuance the to- <laughs> that's, that's, that's the word initiation. Well, mention also um, Francis Weller. Do you know Francis Weller, Sophie? Uh, he he deals is grief grief work. He's well known for doing grief work. I don't work. think I know him. Yeah, uh, we did a course from him yeah. recently, and the course was about initiation oh, actually. Yeah. 
And he's a very profound thinker. I would consider him an elder. Uh, and he spoke about two kinds of initiation, which was, I suppose, regular initiation and then rough initiation. And so yeah. he said that initiation, yeah, it's done within an intact culture. Yeah. Within an intact culture That's where the there's thing. an understanding yeah. of the different stages yeah. of life and there's elders who've been through to it. Help. Yeah. You have been through it mm -hmm. and there's, there's people to, to send you off and there's people to welcome you back. And the welcoming back is super important. Yeah. The welcoming back is really important. Or you're never integrated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's one kind of initiation and that is, you know, can't be replicated maybe fully if you're not, it don't happen to be born in an intact culture, which most yeah. of us aren't. Um, and then there's rough initiation, yeah. which is where, there's a, a person has a necessity or even a culture has a necessity to move to another stage. Like a person needs to get to adulthood, like a, a person and, and perhaps to some extent wants to, even though that's a big trial and is not totally chosen willingly. Um, and so life itself will give those opportunities and it's called rough initiation yeah. because in the, in the regular initiation, there's still often risk. It's, it seems like it's an ingredient of initiation mm -hmm. is risk. But in the rough initiation, the risk is greater because yeah. the container, I mean, life is a container. Life yeah. itself has purpose and meaning. Um, but without the, the tighter container of a, an intact human culture, it's a more difficult initiation. Yeah. And, you know, he, he's seen many people go through those initiations. Uh, you know, you kind of sometimes find guidance and help where you can and sort of patch it together even just hearing an elder that you never met might help and those kinds of things. Um, but like it happens, you know, because whether we're in born in intact cultures or not, we're still human beings yeah. and we have those passages in our DNA from so many millennia. Uh, and still it's possible to make those transitions in life, uh, w whatever culture you're born in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like that distinction. Yeah, I think about what is that that force that allows for the dandelion to crack the cement. So like our psyche is like creative and tries to like find ways around, but yeah. it's like it's 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 kind of being smothered by culture instead of like tenderly held and amplified. It's by more culture. like just despite the culture rather than with yeah. the help of the culture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The the passage takes place or may take place. Yeah, I mean, I think of the story of Tristan and Isolde a lot and about how many times Tristan tries to escape. If you look at it, he like tries to escape the hero's journey by initiating these initiation experiences, um, but they're never completed. Like he never actually gets through and he, in fact, he dies um, at the end. And I thought of him as being like this great example of what happens when like you know, the culture isn't intact the person's trying to experience initiation, trying to escape from the cultural paradigms, and it doesn't quite make it. Um, mm. And yeah, I mean, my friend Dare Saway talks about um, non-consensual initiation, that most initi initiation is not what you would order off the menu, which has been helpful <laughs> frame for me. Because I feel like most of my life, the things that I've experienced, like, you know, I've submitted myself to certain kinds of rigors and experiences that were supposed to change me. And those were good. But the things that have been most intense, I didn't order off the menu. 
Um, it never yeah. would. Right? It never would. And that's like, that sounds like <laughs> a really, it, it sounds like the rough initiation you were talking about. That feels like a very helpful tool. Yeah. And I, the one thing right now is I've been trying to trouble is I feel like the elders that are available right now are not necessarily elders and they're not necessarily going to come in the shapes that you think they're going to. The, you know, a five-year-old <laughs> child who's been through cancer is going to be your elder you know, you're an oak tree is going to be your elder. Like, I do think that there are people who've experienced rough initiations who have the particular wisdom for right now, and they don't necessarily have a platform or a title mm-hmm. uh, or, or, or the age and like superficial attributes that would make you think of someone as an elder. Like I think of the elders in my life and they've been very unpredictable people. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that feels like the force of that. It, it comes through to you in some way, shape, or form, but it's it's not what we typically in the past might recognize it as being as such. It's kind of in a group way it comes, isn't it? In a collective interwoven sort of way, like something's here and something's there, as opposed to there's the group of elders. Yeah. It's like you kind of find elders where you can in the tapestry of your experience. Yeah. And it's such an important topic, I think, for me, because I think about, um, you know, like I'm attracted to this pre-Indo-European time yeah. and, you know, when initiation was this, this part of your, your life, it was yeah, a stage. Yeah, mysteries, man. Yeah. Yeah. And then that becomes demonized and the underworld becomes hell, yeah. H-E-L-L, after uh, what that hell, the Norse goddess and so then that whole process of initiation in the underworld gets very demonized in Indo-European, but then for, even furthermore in Christianity. Yeah. And so we can see how tracing the dis- dis-ease within mythology, when we trace it back to that time, we see that this initiation process was dangerous to the domination culture agendas. That's an interesting mm-hmm. frame. And I also think of Jesus as being someone, you know, the missing years, like we don't see Jesus's initiation. He comes to us mm-hmm. fully formed. Like we don't think about what goes into making a person like that. And then I think mm-hmm. of earlier figures, like you have a um, Joseph of Egypt, who's, you know, exiled, um, sold into slavery by his brothers and goes through an, you know, is a slave in Egypt and then slowly gets wrecked, thrown in prison. And, but it's having these prophetic dreams and these mystical experiences and is slowly recognized and comes into his spiritual authority. Um, mm. And I think of the character of Joseph of Egypt, Egypt as being like a better example of like, yeah, you get a spiritual authority through this alchemical initiation process. And Jesus says, mm. he's not even just, deracinated in his death it's like he's taken away from that origin story that kind of shows us how but what went into the soup yeah exactly yeah Yeah. the underworld that that's a dangerous place for a culture that needs to stay locked in to domination yeah and so why do you think that happened (laughs) (laughs) happened you know approximately seven thousand years ago in the uh i mean i'm a storyteller and i always want to frame it and say like i'm always looking for a good story and i do my jesus book is the first of three books i've planned to write in my life hopefully i'll live long enough to write them all they all involve massive amounts of research and they all i've been calling them i don't know if i should even say this out loud i think i should tell the whole thing before i do that but yeah 
they all, each one refracts around a certain myth or a certain story that happens in that time period. One would be said in Minoan culture, at the fall of Minoan culture. One would be said at Gobekli Tepe 9,000 years ago with the first sedentary communities and this huge asteroid that hit. Um, mm-hmm. And the one I'm working on right now is retelling the story of Tristan and Isolde and looking at proto-Arthurian myths and looking at like the birth of romance culture in England. Um, and so as a storyteller, I think that there's something that happens like 9,000 years ago with fermentation. There's something that happens when we stop moving and not, not just stop moving. It's like, you know, everything is multi-causal. Like we stop moving, we start monoculture and we start fermenting food. And then all of a sudden we're making huge human sacrifices and suddenly their hierarchy is like, it's interesting. And I don't have the answer to the question, but I do think that there are a bunch of different arrows of causation that seem to arrive in that moment, like Gobekli Tepe. Um, yeah, I'm interested in that mm-hmm. moment. Yeah, me too. I feel like there's some force in me that's like, I, I've just my whole life been trying to get back to what, what yeah. exactly... What is your entry point? Like what story, what place do you feel like most drawn to? Mm. And what's coming to mind right now is just the monsters. Yeah. You know, I really, the attraction to the medicine of the monsters and uh, their exile, it seems to be a good fertile entry point. Um, you know, it, it's it's a it has a strong personal component in my life because being a part of the um, Hare Krishna community, yeah, there is like this idealization of Vedic culture, yeah, and so you're taught this like this is the perfect society, and it's very hierarchical. You know, you've got yeah. your Brahmins and Kshatriyas, your warriors and priests at the top, mm. Vaishyas, the, the merchants, and then you've got Sudras, which is the lower servants of society. And so I was very rebellious against this and felt like this sounds like domination culture. And um, so this sort of trying to trace that for me, like personally to, to kind of understand my journey. And yeah, I feel like we're all kind of put in situations that will, um, it kind of, a, it, it led me to an obsessive research quest, I would yeah. say. Yeah. You know, you're talking about the, what was the fungi you were talking about where the ants are kind of... Ophiocortriceps unilateralis, yeah. <laughs> that, that, I would totally relate to that because yeah. I, it, it put me on this quest. Of, and I was like, I got to, get, you know, I got to... I got to bring this out. Yeah, just uh, it, it became very obsessive for me. And um, and what was what are the what are the factors that led to this? And you know, like you were saying, I think there's so many things that so many arrows that put us back to that moment. But you know, I've been really into Maria Gambutas lately, oh, just yeah. for my art. She nourishes like look at these ancient symbols. These are like so rich and they do something to my psyche when I just like look at them, you know, these, what what are these symbols our ancestors drew all over the place and what is the medicine, the spells they were, they understood. And well, that's so powerful because I've thought I've been so also similarly fascinated with like the symbolic 
continuity for thousands of years with like these images appearing exactly the same like that that it, it kind of it's this like fossil of like perhaps a sustainable culture like these symbols are are a clue um because they were so stable for so long and we've we haven't had any symbols in the past 2000 years that have been that stable and so i've been fascinated with with these these especially these goddess archetypes and images and these chevrons and and certain kinds of like the little dots like the people seem to think for like 9000 years that this was the most important thing to do yeah exactly it's fascinating what were they on to what yeah. were they yeah what did they understand and what does it do to my mind when i just look at them yeah. What does that unlock? Like a dream. We can't ever cognitively understand a dream, but when you kind of hold it, it works on you. Yeah. James and Hillman so- is, wrote a great essay about like dream analysis is the worst thing you can ever do. The dream has to just do you. Like just let the dream right. do you. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's like um, it's like psychotherapy as well. Yeah. Psyche, yeah. it comes from the word psyche, but we do yeah. the opposite of what psyche does with psychology. We're, I know. we're naming and claiming it all, right? Yeah. Instead of initiated by the mystery. Yeah. Mm. So... Uh, there's this is this may be opening things up and maybe this will go into another <laughs> conversation i hope as well um and so along the lines of what we've been talking about also my understanding is that different creatures uh plants and so on on this planet we have different ecological niches yeah you know yeah so uh, you know, the arbutus tree exists in a limited range in the pacific northwest requires certain conditions and also gives back to the uh, environment around around them in a particular way, you know, giving to the birds and to the soil and so on. And so we humans uh, could understand that we have also ecological niches. We're very adaptable. There's certain climates that are, are easier for us to live in. Um, we require a certain range of edibles uh, and so on. We have our physical ecological niche as well. So uh, Bill Plotkin, uh, if you're familiar with him, he talks about, yeah, he talks about ecological niche in terms of our mythopoetic ecological niche. So kind of our, our place in the world in terms of our, our, our work in the world, our particular nature within the mythical and poetic realm. And so I'd, I'd like to ask you about this, this capacity we have as humans to read reality in this way or to understand reality in terms of myths and stories, um, which isn't to say it's not actually about myths and stories, but like in terms of our relationship with this world, our ecological relationship with this world, what is the place of that capacity of ours? Like it, it might that capacity be something like another sense. Sometimes I think of it in that way. Like we say a sixth sense, so a seventh sense might be like the mythological sense, you know? Somebody has good eyesight and they can see things from a distance and perceive and make out. Somebody has good mythological sense, they'll be able to navigate these territories of mythology and understand when a story's gone bad and needs to be brought around. Um, so in relation with the other than human world, as well as the human world, what what is the place of this? I, I guess I could call it a mythological sense, but you can call it something else if you want as well. Hmm. I'm thinking it's a really interesting 
perspective. Um, I'm thinking about Robert Bringhurst's essay talking about how myth personifies elementals and science quantifies them. And I'm thinking about how pretty much everything we do is a type of myth making. It just is using a different tool set. Um, so under that zodiac, everything we do is a kind of myth making. So it must be inherent to what we do. And some people would perhaps be more have, have a more developed musculature for it. And I think that really depends perhaps on how you're raised. Um, and, but I mean, the thing I want to offer is that I do think myth gets complicated when it becomes deracinated, when it becomes out of, when you pretend like one myth can apply to a huge a globe rather than to like an ecotone or an eco range. Um, just like, you know, beings have their ecological range. So do myths. Um, so I, I think, I think storytelling in general, when it's done relationally, stitches us back into relationship. And it opens up a vein or a rhizome with you and the earth where you're into, you know, I, Wolfram von Eschenbach's Parsifal is a great example where he tries and tries to get the grail operating in this Campbell hero's journey. And it's only when he abandons that paradigm and turns to the wounded king and says, what ails thee? When he like disrupts the story and ask about another being's experience, ask for a story rather than telling a story. So I would say if there's anything innately human that we've forgotten is we're good at telling stories. We need to get better at asking for stories and listening mm. to stories. And I say this as a big talker and um, big storyteller. You're a big listener too, though. <laughs> um, I hope so. I'm trying to be with my landscape and ask questions about the stories that are happening there. Um, so I don't think I have an answer to your question. I don't know, but I do, I, I have a sense, like it seems you do, that there is some kind of mythic sense that we have and that it can be used for good and for bad. Um, and that I would like to try and use it to wed myself to other stories rather than to mark out my myth as being the only experience. Mm, yeah. yeah, it strikes me when we're talking about the old goddess cultures as well. I mean, it's a it's a coarse um, metaphor, but you know, like a software mythological software. Yeah, you know, it's like a, it's like an outlook uh, to see the world through that, and then you know, certain different softwares will have different effects on the, on the culture and on the people. Yeah, and if you approach if you like approach a being, like say. Uh, a plant like yarrow or whatever I approach and, and herbalism, there's different layers to herbalism and you can, you know, there's the physical properties, but they're spiritual. And, and the more you amplify the relationship and acknowledge the spiritual and feed that with, uh, you know, prayer and acknowledgement, then the more that comes up clear to you. It's courtship. And exactly. It seems- courtship. Earth is lover. Yeah, it seems exactly. In, it seems in that way that it's very much a medium for relating with the rest of life. Isn't yeah, it? it's because eros, isn't it? It's yeah, and if if it's working well, then we'll be in good relationship with. If that mythological uh, network is working well, then we'll be in good relationship with the rest of life. Uh, which isn't to say that we made up the network or that we're like, I'll just throw in there. There's a quote from Joseph Campbell, something to the effect of, you know, there's no inherent meaning, but we, the myth makers give them meaning. 
And and when I read that, I'm like, eh, no, it doesn't it doesn't work for me. <laughs> like that the, there's just this fully chaotic universe, and then humans come along and we give it meaning. It's like, no, I don't accept yeah. that. And yet we do have this myth making, meaning making capacity, but that too must be within the larger context of of life and existence. Like we're we're not this grand exception. So it must be it must be like our visual sense to use the sensory analogy. Um, I'm able to see with my human eyes, but uh, I'm not the only type of creature with eyes. And I certainly didn't make up light, you know, I'm I'm within that range of things. So uh, that mythological capacity, I assume, must be also part of life in that way. And I have my particular experience, just like I perceive a particular uh, um, range of frequencies with my eyes and don't perceive other frequencies i have my perception but it must be something that i'm within not yeah. something that i as a human and my people created you're beckoning its qualities deeper yeah. qualities to emerge by the acknowledgement like the rilke quote what is it it's like my look oh i just i just i i was just reading that quote like my no, nothing it's it's so on the nose it's like nothing was real before i looked at it my looking brought it into being yeah. but it's also like that's not what he believes, obviously, yeah. in like anything he does. So it's like this very plate. It's playful. Yeah. yeah. Uh. You know, it's only lately that mythologists and authors and storytellers even think of themselves as writing a story that they came up with. <laughs> like, that's also a modern concept, also, which is like you stepped into Orpheus. Like, all of the Orphic hymns are written by different poets. The Homer is like many different people. You became Homer. And, you know, all the mantic traditions from Celtic culture, cultures are about divine speech. You know, there was, I think in so many different cultures, storytelling and myth-making was seen as channeling to some degree or, or letting something else, providing a mouth for something else. And so I think that oftentimes myth-making is like becoming the instruments in a certain way. And some people like really know how to make themselves into the instrument. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I like that. I like that. And I think we're a bit traumatized with the whole science dogma that says this tangibility, yeah. we need our proof because then that sort of hesitates <sighs> us to play in that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. All right, well, I want to honor your time, Sophie. We could, we could go I know, on. I could on. talk on. to you forever. <laughs> you know, just, I've got Same. pages of questions. Well, I don't really, but... There's all kinds of things. I just want to come. I want to kind of come look at your library. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, our, the, the connection has been made through the mycelial webs and let it keep growing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm wish it's well. Thank you for you. feeding us in the collective with all your, your little, your bits that you're leaving out there every day. I just feel so nourished. Side note, this has been the most spiritually interesting conversation I've had in a long time. <laughs> and I just want to say thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. The feeling is mutual. Yeah, yeah. really good, really yeah. good. Uh, is there anything okay. you'd like to close with? I'm gonna put. I'll put the link to your website. Um, you put a lot of stuff on Instagram, um, Facebook, also. I'll put all that in the show notes. You know, the spores are in the wind. <laughs> if one lands on you, let it do its thing. Yeah, um, yeah I'm just. I'm just grateful to be here today, um, right before the solstice. So feels. Like, this is always a time that feels very special to me. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I, I just yeah. mentioned to the listener, in case you don't know, that Sophie puts out a lot of very interesting writing on a very regular basis. So if you're interested in these topics, she's got quite a number of essays and posts. Um, you can find them on 
her website and on Facebook. And and Instagram, on Instagram, Cosmogony, at, at C-O-S-M-O-G-Y-N-Y. And that version of the word comes from indigenous storyteller Paula Allen, pa- Paula Allen Gunn. Mm, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So I definitely so, do recommend yeah. um, to the listener to follow up and, and uh, dive more into Sophie's. Feed your microbiomes yeah, that medicine. I'd say Sophie's <laughs> thinking, but it's more like the thinking that's being done through Sophie. Thanks for listening to Story Paths, where we finger threads weaving story with culture. Before we go, I'd like to remind you of my new course, Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas, that is now available on Skillshare. If you're looking for a playful, creative space, this may just be for you. You can find the trailer and a link for a free month of Skillshare in the show notes. And as we part... I send my best wishes for you and yours. In the words of the Irish poet John O'Donoghue, may you realize that the shape of your soul is unique, that you have a special destiny here, and behind the facade of your life, there is something beautiful and eternal happening. And so we close.